0: Well, hey, good morning, Brookside. Good morning. It's great to see all of you. Hope you're having a really great weekend. And thanks for joining us. Uh, Fourth of July weekend, so that's a pretty big deal. And hopefully tomorrow will be nice and sunny, I suppose. But this is not the normal summer holiday weekend we want. I love seeing that video. Um, just love what Tara shared there. And it really fits so well with where we're going this morning. Um I do want to say welcome to you too, though, if you're a guest, as Jeff said that, if you're maybe visiting from out of town or here with family, uh, maybe you just moved here, I don't know, this summer to Omaha, Um, it's just great to have you here, so we really hope you feel welcome this morning. Uh, My name's Brad, I'm the high school pastor here at the church, and it's fun for me to be up here. Um, If you are a guest, I know Jeff just mentioned this, and the video sort of referenced it, but if you're confused as to what's going on, we're on a journey this year as a church reading through the Bible in 2016, and just going straight through. And so the sermons are going along with the reading plan that we've developed that goes along with it, and uh, it's really been great. And so we're currently in a series called Prophets. Um, got this morning, so right now and then next week we'll wrap up this Prophets series, and then later in July we'll jump into the wisdom literature. Um, by August we're into the New Testament, and so um, that's great. But here's what's really exciting too. This, this past Friday, July 1st, mark the halfway point of the year, right? And so if you've been doing this 365 thing, if you've been keeping up with the readings, um, way to go. Like, you've made it halfway. And some of the, you know, prophets or maybe some of these things in the Old Testament were very challenging for you. And so just want to say, way to go. Still half of the year left, so stick with it. But um, that's quite an accomplishment. And I do want to say, too, if you've fallen behind, um, don't let that frustrate you. Maybe jump on board today. Like, as a matter of fact, today in the reading plan that we have, um, the book of Nehemiah starts. Nehemiah is a phenomenal book. Um, kind of sort of the same time frame as what we're talking about this morning. And so it would just be a great time for you to jump in and just start back up with Nehemiah and continue from here. But uh, to start this morning, um, I want to ask you this question What project or task in your life have you been putting off and putting off and putting off for quite some time now? What is that? Seriously, think about that for just a second. What project? What task? There's got to be something. For most of you, you can think of something that you've been putting off. Some of you just got an elbow from your wife um, because there's, oh, it tends to be the guy who puts things off perhaps or doesn't get projects done. Um, but we all have something. And now maybe you go, I'm a little irritated brother, that you bring that up this morning because there's a reason I've been putting it off because I don't want to do it and I, I'm not motivated to do it and I don't want to think about it in church, frankly. And so I don't want to, you know, why did you bring it up now? So thanks, Brad. You're like, appreciate that. Um, Here's two things for me that I think of that I'm just like, i got to get these done. So the first one is putting water sealant on our deck. And that's not huge, but apparently, to benefit the wood, you're supposed to put water sealant on your deck. We don't have a very big deck, but a couple years ago, I think my brother-in-law was doing that. And I was like, oh, that's nice. We lived in our house for seven years. Never done anything to our deck. It's starting to be green in some places, which is a bad indication. And so even now for two or three years, I've had this, like, jug thing of Thompson's water seal sitting on our dryer, and it's just sat there. So need to get that done. That's awesome. The deck's falling apart. Um, the second thing that, it, that we have is we have this small stack of stuff from Ikea sitting in our basement that is yet to be assembled and hung up. So my wife and I ran out of Ikea a couple weeks ago, mid-May, and uh, any IKEA fans here, you're aware of this crazy massive store, only a couple handfuls. I see some guys, that's awesome. I was going to say, I tend to feel like it's a cool store, but mostly, at least, and maybe this is just the context I'm in right now, it's like if you're in your 30s and you're a woman, you love IKEA, like it's somewhat inexpensive and it's just great. And if you're married to one of those women that love IKEA, you sort of hate IKEA. And You're like, my wife just always wants to go to Denver, to Kansas City, and you would love to have one of those stores here in Omaha. In fact, I see this, uh, Kara and Jeff Seachdra, our family here in the church, and Kara puts on Facebook this last week that they, they were in Kansas City, made it in and out of Ikea in an hour. That's not possible. Like, it's just, it's like a maze in there. You can't get out once you're in it because it's this crazy. So, Kara, you shouldn't lie on Facebook I'm pretty sure that didn't really happen, but they were both smiling, it said like hashtag winning. Yeah, right, I don't think so. Here's what, here's what I'm saying though, it's like next to impossible to assemble things from Ikea because they don't send instructions with their, they sort of have a reputation for that, I think. So there's no assembly re- instructions and so that's why it's still sitting in my basement. And even Friday night, Leslie was like, hey, you should go put together that stuff, and I didn't. Um, what is it for you? What project, what task, maybe what conversation? Have you been putting off and putting off, and it just needs to get done? What we find this morning in this short, short prophetic book of Haggai, that's where we're going to be landing this morning, is that this is where the Jewish people find themselves as the, uh, the prophet Haggai is sent to them to declare this message. They have a very significant assignment from God that he wants them to accomplish. And God has a very significant assignment for you this morning as well, way more significant than my deck or my Ikea stack There's significant stuff, there's tasks, there's things that God wants to use you to build, and that's what we're going to find in Haggai this morning. This book takes place over 2,500 years ago, over 500 years before Jesus Christ even comes on the scene. And So here's some background, and this relates a little to where we were last Sunday. So in 586 B.C., 586 B.C., the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and they level it to the ground. They burn the city and they destroy the temple entirely. We're going to be talking a lot about the temple this morning. And took, they took almost all of the Jews into exile and the captivity to Babylon, right? If you remember last week, or you just know the general story of Daniel and his three friends, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, sacks Jerusalem, and Daniel and his friends were of those exiles that went away to Babylon. Well, about 50 years later, Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian comes in, takes over Babylon, puts an end to the Babylonian empire, and in the next year, which was 538 BC, He allows the Jews to return back to their homeland, and, this is significant, he allowed them to begin rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Now, among the returning exiles were two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Both have books in the Bible. In fact, Ezra chapter 5 mentions both of these prophets. If you're doing the 365 reading, you read the book of Ezra this last week. Tara just mentioned it in that video. But these prophets are mentioned, so it's around the same time God raises up these two prophets to assist in the rebuilding of the temple. The work of rebuilding actually began, according to Haggai chapter 1, verse 15, on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of the reign of King Darius, which in our modern dating is September 21st of 520 BC. You go, what's with the dates, Brad? Here's why I mention these dates. is because 18 years went by between the return of the Jewish exiles from Babylon and the rebuilding of this temple. 18 years. Anybody in here have an 18-year-old? Like, that's a significant amount of time. What we find in Ezra is that they kind of started to rebuild. They rebuilt the altar in chapter 3. They began to rebuild the foundation. But as far as the structure of the temple, they did not actually begin to rebuild 16 more years. And it's been a long time. And that delay is what brings about this message from Haggai this morning. And let me remind you, the temple of God was no optional thing to Old Testament religion. This was huge. This was vitally important to the way that God set things up in the Old Testament. It was required to administer the sacrificial system, right, that God's law mandated. And we've seen that throughout the, whole te- the Old Testament throughout this year. And so this was huge. And the way that Haggai motivates the Jews to rebuild the temple of God has a powerful application to our own efforts in building God's church and for God's plan in our own lives today. So if you have a Bible or if you have a smartphone with the app, I'd love for you to pull that out and turn to the book of Haggai, sort of follow along. I'm going through a lot of scripture this morning, um, so do that. If you have a hard copy of the Bible, Old Testament, sort of hard to find, it's between the two Z books. So Zephaniah and Zechariah, um, Haggai's right in the middle of those two, only two chapters. Here's what we find, I want to give you sort of the structure or the layout of this book, so you're going to understand Haggai better after today. This is just for some clarity as to the layout of this book. The book is clearly divided into four distinct messages from God. Four messages given by God to Haggai, each of which is precisely dated. And so I want to just show you this real quick. The first message was delivered by Haggai to two peoples, Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. And it's dated according to chapter one, verse one, in the second year of King Darius, king of Persia, on the first day of the sixth month So again, in our modern calendar, that date is August 29th, 520 B.C. And this message takes up all of chapter 1. We get to chapter 2. The second message is found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. It's dated on the 21st day of the 7th month in the same year. That date's October 17th, same year. So we're just in the fall. The third message is found in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And it's dated in chapter 2, verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month. And that date is December 18th of the same year. You know, if you use a New Living translation of the Bible, if you sort of like that, it'll just give you these modern dates. It's just much more clear to understand. It's pretty easy for them to figure those out. And then finally, there's a fourth message. It comes in the last four verses of the book, and that's delivered on the same day as the third message, December 18th. What I want you to see is this whole book of Haggai takes place in a matter of four months in the same year. And what you find in these four messages is that the first and the third messages are quite similar, and the second and the fourth are pretty similar. And so this morning, I want us to really take a look at the first and the third in order to build the context for the second message. And the second message has just uh, its just a great set of verses. And so that's where we're gonna land this morning. So what's the problem here? What's really going on that necessitates Haggai writing this book? What's the problem that produces this message? Well, the first message in chapter 1 reveals to the governor and to the high priest and to the people that the reason they are all frustrated is that they have tried to make their own lives comfortable while neglecting the temple of God. So I'm going to read from you. Check out verses 4 through 6 of chapter 1, and these will be on the screens. It says this, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, referring to the temple, remains a ruin. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So they're living in this constant state of frustration and discontentment. Nothing satisfies them. They're, they want more, right? We have clothes, but we want more. We have food, but we want more. We have money, but we're spending it like crazy, and we want more. We can't pass over this lesson too easily this morning. It's for us as well. And I put it like this. If you devote yourself to planning out your future, and to eating and drinking, and clothing yourself, and earning wages, but neglect your unique ministry in the body of Christ, you will live in a state of constant frustration. In fact, let me put it another way. If you spend your time and energy seeking comfort and security from the world and do not give any concern to honoring God, every pleasure will leave a sour aftertaste of depression or guilt or frustration. And I'm not just saying this morning that you need to serve more here at Brookside or something, although maybe you you do, maybe you should. I'm saying in general, in your day-to-day life, and if you're a Christian, And so for just a second, if you go, I'm here today and I'm not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you sort of have, you can check out of this for just a second. But if you're a Christian in your day-to-day life, how are you living for the Lord? How are you living for the Lord? Are you living to honor and glorify God? Or are you mostly living to glorify yourself? That's a question for me as well. I'm just like you up here. The reason I mention honoring God is because of verse 8. So look at chapter 1, verse 8. Haggai's remedy for frustration goes like this. He writes, Go up into the mountains, God says, and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. See, we need to understand both back then in Haggai's day and now, the real problem is not the neglect of a building but rather, it's indifference to the glory of God. We just don't think that much in our day-to-day lives about honoring God. And so we know this, that the temple of the Old Testament existed for God's glory, and the church today exists for God's glory. And indifference to the growth and furthering of the church and its mission is always a sign of failure to love the glory of God. So this is huge. And the bitter fruit of this failure is a life of frequent frustration. To paraphrase Jesus, he who seeks to save his life will lose it to continual frustration, but he who loses his life for the glory of God and for the good of his cause will find a different kind of life here on earth, here and now, deep and rich and lasting. So verse 9 sums up the situation in Jerusalem so well. God says this, you expected much But see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin. Well, each of you is busy with your own house. And then in verse 12 through 15, we see this miraculous turnaround. Chapter 1, Haggai reports that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people obey. They repent, they hear these words of the Lord, and they obey, and they begin to work on the temple on the 24th day of the sixth month. And so after 18 years of neglect and frustration, the people of God begin to learn their lesson, and they go, this temple matters, and we need to build it. And they learn, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the rest, all that other little stuff, it'll be given to you as well. So that's the first message. Now skipping over the second message, I want to look at the third message, which I said was found in chapter 2, verse 10 through 19. So skip over to that. Here's what we find. Verse 10, again, dates this in the 24th day of the ninth month. So this is about three months after the work on the temple has begun. And things have apparently not been going so well. See, according to verses 11 through 14, the attitude of the people was that mere contact with the temple would make them holy. So just because they're working on the temple, they sort of think they're becoming holy, and in fact, they're still living in sin. The holiness of the temple did not rub off on them. Instead, their sin is desecrating the temple. Don't we sometimes act that way? We sort of act like, if I go to church, I'll just alleviate my guilt or my sins, or I don't necessarily need to read the Bible, but I like to set my Bible out prominently on the kitchen counter or on the coffee table, and somehow by osmosis, I'm just going to absorb the wisdom and holiness of the Bible. I don't need to read it. But it's right there and it looks quite nice. I remember um, Pastor Chuck Swindoll once used this illustration. Chuck Swindoll is now a very uh, old pastor, I'll say, down in Texas. When I was growing up, he was on the radio a lot and my dad listened to him quite often. He once said this, if you try to pick up some mud with a white glove, it's strange that the mud never gets glovy. which is like vintage Swindoll, but of course the, the glove gets very, very muddy. Here's here's what these verses say, chapter 2, verse 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest said, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people. And this nation, in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. And so even though they have begun to work on the temple, the holiness of the temple is not rubbing off on them. They're still living in sin. And so what Haggai does in response to their imperfect obedience is to point the people back to their big, the big turning point for them, the big experience change, which was when, it was when they began building the temple. And so in verses 15 through 17... We find that Haggai tells the people to consider what they should do now in view of how life was for them before they started building the temple. And so the Lord says through Haggai, verse 15, now give careful thought to this from this day on, consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. He says, remember back, skip to verse 17, he writes, I struck all the work of your hand with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. In other words, God says, recall how miserable and frustrated you were and how things were just going very, very poorly for you when you were in disobedience before you began to build the temple. The point is, surely it is utter foolishness to continue in that kind of sinful living now, if it cost you so much back then. But then there's a second motivation. It's found in verses 18 and 19. God says, consider how life has been for you since you started the work. And so in verse 19, he writes this, Is there yet any seed left in the barn? And I'm going to finish out that verse. He writes, Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. This is a very, this message was somewhat confusing. I think the meaning here in the second part is this. It's only been three months since they began building the temple. He asks, is there yet any seed left in the barn? I think the answer is, the seed's not in the barn, it's in the ground, it's been planted. And no, there's no fruit yet. It's not born any fruit. It's only been three months, and it's wintertime. But there's, it's been planted, and I think God is saying, I will bless you again. I am not against you. I am for you. I will bless you. The harvest is coming, and so consider your ways. He says, keep building. Don't slack off. Keep working on my house, and I will bless you. And so that's a brief look at the first and the third messages. Now again, remember, what's at stake here is not simply the building of the temple, but more than that, it's making much of God and his glory. So again, think of the significant things in your life, or perhaps what God has called you to. What are you building with your life? That's my question for you this morning. What are you building with your life? So now you might say that The first message and the third message are the two pieces of bread that make make up the sandwich. And so I want to dive into the meat now. We're going to go back and look more closely at the second message, chapter 2, verse 1. So again, according to chapter 2, verse 1, the message comes now about a month after the people had begun to build. So we had jumped ahead to the third message. That was three months. We're sort of backing up a little bit here to look at this second message. And again, it seems as though the work had either slowed down or come to a complete stop. What we find with this Jewish people, even looking back to Ezra, is they are not great builders, right? Opposition comes, and they start, and then they stop. And they start, and then they stop. And then bad things happen, and they are not motivated, and they stop. And so again here, things are not going well. You look at the end of verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, God basically says, get to work. So we know something has gone wrong. Now what makes this message so practical is that as We're, we're going to find we can see ourselves so easily, at least I can, we see ourselves so easily in these workers who are sort of start and stop and never have great motives. And so this is such an encouraging word I found, these nine verses, and they're very. they're going to hopefully give us a lot of strength this morning. Verse 3 tells us why the people have become weak and discouraged in their labor. Haggai writes this, verse 3, "'Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory?' What he's saying is, hey, guys, show of hands, who here remembers Solomon's temple? The former one, it was, it was awesome. Anyone here? And there must have been, I mean, they would have been in their 70s, 80s, they would have been the older generation goes, oh, yeah, they remember. He goes, who of you left remembers the former house in its glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? And they go, yeah, it seems like nothing. Here's what's going on. The workers, right, they're discouraged because of the memory of the way the temple used to look, and they're thinking back to how glorious the temple used to be. Less than 70 years ago, it stood in that very same spot, and here they are. They're beginning to build this new temple, but it was nothing compared to this magnificent achievement of Solomon, right? He was so wealthy. He was the guy that was supposed to build the temple, and for centuries, it was the center for holy worship. It was magnificent, Instead of inspiring the people, the memory of that former temple makes the people look at this new, pitiful little structure that they were building, and they feel hopeless. It seems like nothing. And they go, what's the use? We can't match the glory of Solomon's temple. We're wasting our time. They're going, nothing beautiful or worthwhile is ever going to come of this. You know what, guys? We did pretty well back in Babylon without the temple at all. Certainly, we can get along without it now. Again, ignoring how crucial the temple was to the Old Testament religion, they said, I'd rather have this beautiful memory of something great than a weak, lame, insignificant substitute. And that's what this feels like. And so they lose their motivation and the work slows down or even stops entirely. Does this sound like anything we've ever experienced? Anything you've ever experienced? Think back to that task or that assignment maybe, that to-do list that you thought about earlier? Is that why you're not getting it done? You just have no desire to? Again, of course, we're talking about things much more significant in your life than what we thought about earlier. Sometimes it's the sense that you work, and you work, and the outcome seems so insignificant that you pour yourself into a thing week after week and month after month but the fruit. It's so minimal. And you just don't see it, and you don't know that it's doing any good, and you look back in history, or quite frankly, you look across the street at your neighbor's. And you see the grand achievements of others. But your temple, your tiny little insignificant temple, seems so trivial, right? So lame. So what's the use? And so we get discouraged. And we're tempted to quit. We put away our aspirations and we hang up our dreams and we coast. Because no matter what, who wants to devote his life to a second-rate temple, right? Not me. And see, of course... We can see the application for this. In today's world, we're a prime target for discouragements like these. Because you think of things like social media, Instagram and Facebook, and other avenues, you see what everyone else's temple looks like, don't you? And they always seem so nice and so shiny and so new, so perfect. And we believe that they are. And then we look at our own temples and we compare the two. And with them, everyone is smiling and everyone seems to be having fun. And everyone seems to be going on these elaborate vacations or getting a new house or just getting new stuff or their kids look so put together. And it all looks so much better than my little insignificant temple. It's the comparison trap, y'all, right? It's the comparison trap. And we know that's what it is. It's a trap. It's a trap. Pastor Andy Stanley did a series at his church in the Atlanta area a number of years ago just called The Comparison Trap. I remember first listening to it. And then uh, just this past spring, his wife Sandra put out this devotional book, just called "The Comparison Trap." In fact, if you remember back, um, we had a Tuesday Night women's study here at the church in the month of May that went through that book, and I think was just a really great study. The bottom line in his first sermon for that series was simply this. He was just talking about it all. He just said, "There's no win in comparison. That's the bottom line. There's no win in comparison. There's no win." And we know that deep down, we get it, but if you compare, it, you lose, and we just got to keep our eyes on our own life, which has prompted many of you perhaps to, you know, take a break from Facebook or social media. We can't afford to do it, and yet many, many, many of us have known the discouragement of feeling like what we're doing with our lives is of so little significance that we might as well quit. And if that's you today, this message from Haggai is tailor-made for your heart today. Because first of all, God confronts the discouragement of the people with this life-giving command in verse 4. He says, but now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. So he says, I clearly, he does not agree with their assessment of the situation. If they think their work on the temple is of so little significance that they can quit, God says, no way. I'm doing something here. This is huge. He says, be strong and work. In other words, he says, get going. Build the temple. I want this temple built and focus on your task and don't focus on the opposition. I've given you an assignment to complete. And so then he gives two arguments for why they should get busy. Both of these are huge for us today. So the first argument, look at the end of verse 4. Chapter 2, very end of verse 4, he says, get going, he says, work, but then he says, why? For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Don't listen to the opposition. So God's first argument for why they should get busy, he says he is with them. And of course we would know this, right? Think about this, the value of any job, any job would increase With the dignity or the prestige or the the importance of the person or people working right beside us, right? Willing to do the work with us. And so how could we ever then belittle a work when God says that he's with us in it? And that's what he says to you today. Maybe write this down. When God is working at your side, nothing is trivial. When God's working at your side, nothing is trivial. But not only that, when he refers in chapter 2, verse 5, to the exodus... He says, think back, think about the covenant made when you came out of Egypt. What is he saying? He's showing us that the pre- his presence now is the same powerful presence that divided the Red Sea. Any Jew would have remembered that, the stories of the Exodus, of what he did to Egypt. They go, this is the God that divided a sea in half. This God is absolutely incredible. Consider this, Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. God says, you yourselves... Have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He goes, it's the same thing now. I will carry you on eagle's wings. I will see that this assignment gets accomplished and you will get it rebuilt. He says, I will use all of my divine power just like I did at the Exodus to help you and to strengthen you and protect you. Therefore, be strong and do not fear and get busy at your task. The second argument God uses to encourage those who think their work is insignificant is found in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 2. This is a great set of verses. Let me read this. Verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty, Silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. "Then the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. What's God saying here? He's saying, I'm in control. I've got a plan. Don't forget this. I will see that this assignment is completed. And so, guys, take courage and don't fear and get busy because you build more than you see. What you're accomplishing, it's way more than you will ever see. Maybe you're leaving a legacy, that you have no idea it's even being built. All you see is this average, insignificant temple, but God promises to take your work and to fill it with his glory and to make your labors worth a million more times than you could ever imagine. I'm going to put it simply. Here's my bottom line this morning. Very, very simple. I just said this, let the Lord make you strong and then carry on in your task. Let the Lord make you strong and carry on. Carry on doing whatever it is, that significant stuff that God has put in your heart for you to do. Four times at the beginning of chapter two, God says, be strong, be strong, be strong. Let the Lord make you strong today. Now before we're done here, How was this prophecy fulfilled? I think particularly of the prophecy given in chapter 2, verse 9. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That would have been encouraging to them, right? How insignificant the temple seemed. Uh, I think like most prophecies in the Bible, it was fulfilled in stages. That's usually how it works. And the final stage is probably yet to come. But here's the sequence, sequence of fulfillment that we see throughout the rest of Scripture. So by the time Christ had begun his ministry... Herod the Great had rebuilt the Zerubbabel's temple here. They eventually get going on it, but Herod the Great had rebuilt it until it was truly magnificent. So that was one fulfillment of the prophecy. It really was greater than the former temple when Jesus was there. You recall in the New Testament how Jesus' disciples you know, would look at the temple and say, wow, look at this structure. But of course, that temple, maybe you don't know this, 70 AD, that temple was destroyed. So Christ had already Uh, risen from the grave, left the earth. But in 70 AD, that temple was destroyed. But again, of course, Jesus had said in John chapter 2, verse 19, he told the people, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. But of course, verse 21, the temple he had spoken of was his body. Get this too, I find this so interesting in Haggai. This Zerubbabel that's mentioned numerous times, mentioned in Ezra, He was the governor. He was leading the building of the temple. He's in the genealogy of Jesus. He's in the lineage of Jesus. You find his name in Matthew chapter one. And so what we have, Zerubbabel is building this physical temple that seems kind of second rate at the time, and later Jesus Christ is his greater descendant, the Messiah, comes along and says, now I'm the true temple. I'm the one that the temple was pointing to all along. Why? Because as Jesus says in John two, he was saying that there's a direct continuity between the Old Testament temple and himself. Then in the Old Testament, God met his people in the temple. Now, God meets us in Jesus Christ. Which, of course, is why we don't have a temple anymore, right? We don't go to the temple. We don't provide sacrifices for the Christian. See, remember what Jesus' invitation is to you and me. He says basically to us, Let me make your body my temple. Now, hey, I'm going to leave the earth, disciples. I'm sending my spirit. Let me make your body my temple. Why? Because the the New Testament clearly tells us that the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. And we're all guilty. We've all rebelled against our maker. We've all sinned. We've all, whatever you want to consider it, a mistake. Maybe you don't like the word sin, but we're all guilty. And death is a coming, folks, right? Could be today, could be tomorrow. Scary thought, could be 50 years from now, but it's coming. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'll take that penalty on myself. I am going to take your death penalty for you. I will take hell for you so that you don't have to. And I'm the only person who could do that because I'm the only sinless, spotless man who's ever lived. And he says, You'll never have to be separated from God Almighty. And he goes to the cross and he died in our place for our sins so that we could live forever. And he extends that gift to each one of us by grace. Just says, here it is. It's a gift. But you have to take it. Have you taken it? And he gives it to us and he says, let me make your body my temple. I want to come and dwell with you. That's his invitation to us today. Now some people believe that another glorious temple will be be built one day in Jerusalem before Christ returns. And that may be, depends how you interpret certain passages of scripture, literally or more spiritually. But what we do know is that the final state of eternity is described for us. Where? Well, at the the end of the Bible, of course. So in Revelation chapter 1, we read this, verse 22. John's talking about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And The Apostle John says this, I did not see a temple in this city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So again, we don't need a temple. God's our temple. And so the point is this, God had a purpose for a temple. And the Jews of Haggai's day couldn't see it all and what they could see seemed average and insignificant at the time. And so God came to them with a word of promise through Haggai and said, Be strong, I will make you strong. And so carry on in your work. Get going. Get busy. He says, the heavens and the earth, the sea and the land, and all treasures are mine. And I will take the fruits of your little labor and I will make them glorious beyond measure, no matter how trivial or insignificant or average they may seem to you now. I think there's a principle here that applies to each one of us. And it's this, God takes small insignificant things and builds them into a work of art for his glory. He uses us, small, insignificant things when we feel like we don't matter, and he turns us into a work of art, and he turns our efforts into a work of art, and he uses us. He chooses to use us. Isn't that amazing? So, oh, how we should take courage in our little spheres of influence. Nothing you do should be burdensome if you do it in the name of the Lord God. Nothing you do should be burdensome. He will shake heaven and earth to fill your work with splendor. So don't be discouraged today. Again, I ask you, what are you building with your life? Take courage. Be strong. Seek the face of God, and you will complete the task that God has assigned to you. And God will use you to build incredible things throughout your lifetime. And he will use you and he wants to use you not just for your own personal self, but for the local church, for this church. He wants to use you to build the church and so don't miss that application as well. So let the Lord make you strong and may you carry on. Let's pray. God, the work is yours. The materials are yours. God, it's all yours. The silver, the gold. God, we are instruments in your hands, and you choose to use us. But God, it's all for your glory. And it's all by your strength. And so God, strengthen us today. God, encourage us. Build us up. God, strengthen us to finish the assignment that you've given to each one of us. And God, may we build up the church. God, help us to use our gifts and our talents and everything. God, help us to build up the church. God, that you may be glorified in it. God, will you? Will you come and strengthen us, God? That's our prayer today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.